Thanks so much for greeting each other, welcoming each other. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Come on back if you would. And if you have a Bible or Bible app, please find the book of Romans in chapter 6. The book of Romans, chapter 6. Next week, back to Ecclesiastes. We want to take one sermon to follow up on Easter. Specifically, I'd like to reinforce our doctrine of sanctification in light of the reality of Christ's resurrection. I want to fortify our understanding of change in light of the empty tomb. Let me pray for us briefly, and then Joe's going to read our passage. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, having worshipped you through song, and through the recitation of the Nicene Creed, we now worship in and through your word. Engage with us as we engage with your word, we ask you. In Jesus' name, amen. Joe's going to begin reading. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by, bat by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Thank you, Joe. Have you noticed how... Experiencing something is very different than just being told about it. Experiencing something is very different than just hearing about it. If I told you about the Grand Canyon, I said it's in Arizona, it's a very large hole in the ground, you might say, well, that's good to know. But if I took you to the Grand Canyon, stood you on the rim, and you experienced the vastness of one mile down to the Colorado River and 18 miles across to the other rim, would that experience be different than just hearing about it? Or if I told you about Yosemite Valley, I said it has, it has these granite rock formations. You might say, thanks for telling me. But if I took you to Yosemite Valley and you experienced El Capitan towering 3,000 feet above you, and then to the bottom of Yosemite Falls, the largest or tallest waterfall in North America, 2,500 feet or before Half Dome, almost a mile of sheer granite, would that experience be any different? than just hearing about it? What if I told you that Jesus' tomb was empty? What if I convinced you of the historical evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? You might say, that's nice to know. Thank you for telling me. 
But what if I then said, and if you are a Christian, you can experience the power of that resurrection. What would you say? Or further, if I said, in fact, if you're a believer in Jesus, you have already experienced that. And that experience of Christ's resurrection enables you to live a new life right now. Would you have any interest in that experience? I hope so. Because that's what we find in this passage. That the experience of Christ's resurrection empowers you to live a new life. That's what I hope to see with you in these few verses, that for the Christian, for the believer in Jesus Christ, the experience of Christ's triumphant resurrection empowers you to now live a new life. Let's unpack the logic here in three steps. Three steps to unpack the logic of these verses. Step one, we died to sin. Step one, we died to sin. Here in the book of Romans in chapter four, we've been told that God counts the believer as righteous in Jesus Christ. That's called justification. You are declared righteous with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter five, we get the theological backstory how in Adam all die, but a second Adam has come, Jesus, and by his obedience, he makes many righteous before God. But the apostle knows that gospel, that good news of being counted righteous before God, that brings an objection. The objection we find in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin, persist in sin, that grace may abound? In other words, does this good news of grace encourage sin? Ever wondered that? The French skeptic Voltaire, Voltaire said, God will forgive. That's his business. Probably we've all thought that in some way. Why not sin? God will forgive me. So, does the gospel of grace encourage sin? Answer, verse 2. By no means! The very strong negation. May it never be! By no means! Notice, how can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, Christian, there is something true about you, something that has already happened to you, an experienced reality, an experienced reality. You died to sin. What does that mean? Well, I think the best explanation is down in verse 6. Look down to verse 6. We read, we know that our old self was crucified with him, killed with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That phrase, no longer enslaved to sin, helpfully encapsulates what it means to have died to sin. 
See, here, sin is a, a power that, from the moment of birth, has mastery over us. doesn't mean that we're always as bad or will be as bad as we could be, but it does mean, left to ourselves, we are not truly free. We are under the mastery of sin. In our society, we talk about things like sexual liberation. I read that this week. In the New York Times, sexual liberation movement. We are now free to sleep with whomever we want, whenever we want, but that's not real freedom. Tim Keller likens true freedom to a fish in water. You know, a fish has gills, so in water it's free to breathe. But bring that fish on land, and it cannot breathe, it dies. The fish needs the restriction of the water to be free to breathe. That's what we're like. We need the restriction of a, a new master, God himself, ruling over us, and then we can live in true human freedom. That's what this gospel does. That's why the gospel of grace does not encourage sin, because it deals not simply with the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin. It doesn't just forgive, it also frees. It doesn't just pardon, it also transforms. He who breaks the power of canceled sin does what? Sets the prisoner free. What does this mean for those who believe? Well, in a word, it means hope. And hope, friends, hope is crucial for the process of change. A lack of hope leads to spiritual paralysis. It's been said that despair, despair is the belief that tomorrow will be just like today. Maybe you feel that about the process of change. You feel a kind of despair. That tomorrow will be just like today. I will always be stuck in this particular pattern of sin. I can never, will never change. You feel that sense of despair. Friend, you need fresh hope. Theologically informed hope. Hope, hope for change that grows in the soil of this theological truth. You have died to sin. If you are in Christ, you are no longer its slave. And that brings us to step two in the logic. Step two, we are joined to Christ. Step two, we are joined to Jesus Christ. Now look at verse three. Verse three. Do you not know? That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Now, the apostle is referencing baptism here because of what baptism signifies, at least in part. At least in part, baptism signifies the spiritual reality of being united to Christ, being in union with Christ, being spiritually joined to Jesus. In verse 3, we're joined to Jesus in his death, 
in verse 4, we're joined to Jesus in his burial and resurrection. Notice verse 4 with me, please. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, we're going to get to the newness part. I want to first understand this being joined to Jesus part. I want to first understand this union with Christ. That's, what, that's why baptism is being referenced here. And that's key to the logic. It's key to understand for the process of change. The believer has been united to Christ. Again and again, the New Testament references the Christian as being in Christ. In Christ. Every time you see that, in Christ, it has this concept embedded into it, union with Jesus Christ. It's the union that I believe Jesus illustrates in John 15 when he says to his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. It's a powerful metaphor. On our own, we're just lifeless branches. But if that branch is united to the true vine, his life-giving power flows in us and through us, and we bear much fruit, Jesus says. Romans 6 is saying, in effect, Christian, you're a branch. You're a branch joined to the resurrected, risen vine, Jesus Christ. You haven't just heard about Easter. You've experienced it. Does that mean the Christian will sin no more? Kind of sounds like it. Died to sin. Does that mean the Christian will sin no more? I wish. And Sung wishes too. <laughs> On my part. I wish there was autocorrect for my behavior. You know when you're typing or texting and your phone decides what you really meant to type is something entirely different and it auto-corrects to what you should have typed, at least according to your phone. I wish there was auto-correct for what I would think and say and do. So like when a driver cuts me off, instead of, you, auto-correct would kick in, you, bless you. <laughs> Jesus loves you. Auto-correct is have a nice day. Romans 6 is not describing autocorrect for you. This is no perfectionism. We still sin. What is before us is definitive change that gets lived out incrementally in our experience. Definitive change that you proceed through incrementally. 2 Corinthians 3 says we are being transformed into Jesus' image from one degree of glory to another. One degree of glory to another. Incremental change in how you live this out. So we still sin. We still sin. But, but being joined to Jesus here, being united to Christ, means we can turn from sin. It means we can intelligently repent from sin and intelligently pursue change. 
I am, I am sad to report that recently I sinned against Marshall, my fellow pastor. I do want to tell you, however, that Marshall is a great guy to sin against. And if you are looking for someone to sin against later on, I recommend Marshall. I've already tested him out here. We had a little misunderstanding between us. He assumed something and I assumed something, and that, that happens, right? But then I, I responded in full defensive mode, you know, full shields up. Well, you don't understand this, and I never said that. I didn't mean to promise this, and I had to go back and ask his forgiveness for my arrogance, my sinful defensiveness. And Marshall made this very encouraging, theologically informed comment. He said, quote, it is a miracle of grace when we repent of sin. It's a miracle, he said. A work of the Spirit in our lives. Such a gracious reminder. If you are in Christ, you have been joined to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have been changed. You can change, and you will be changed. That should affect how you think about yourself. That should affect your sense of identity. That should affect how you describe yourself. The, the pornography addict who becomes a Christian might say, I, I think I will always be a porn addict. And maybe that's helpful sobriety. Maybe that's a wise self-distrust. But newness is what most defines you, Christian. No, you are not entirely new. No, you are not entirely new, but you are genuinely new. You are in Christ, in living union with the risen Christ. You must think of yourself that way. It is vital you do so, for then you can do step three. Then you can do step three of the logic. We are to live in newness of life. Step three, we are to live in newness of life. Look at verse 4 again, please. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism, symbolizing union with Christ, into death, in order that. You see that phrase, those three words? It's translating one word that's now telling you, here comes purpose. Here comes result. Here comes intended effect. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk, live in newness of life. Do you see the purpose there? It has a kind of oughtness to it, an expectation. Freed, freed now, you're freed to live in newness of life. What does that look like? Well, many things we could say here, certainly, but it begins in the heart. A newness in our thinking and desiring. Look down to verse 17. I think you get at least an indication of this in verse 17, where we read, Thanks be to God, that you who once 
were once slaves of sin, notice, have become obedient from the heart, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. We're not talking about mere external behavior modification. We're talking about something that God does within you, that change working from the inside out, from the heart, new thoughts and, and new desires. I'm not saying your experience of heart change will be identical to someone else's. I find for sometimes for one person, a particular temptation for them is just kind of eradicated, it seems. And for another person, they may have to struggle and fight against that temptation for the rest of their lives. The Lord deals with us as individuals. You've probably found that out. I'm also not saying that temptations to sin are the same as sinning. All right? Jesus was genuinely tempted. Jesus never sinned. Those are distinct things. But I am saying, I am saying don't put a ceiling on this newness, friends. Don't limit the power of resurrection, even at a heart level. Don't limit what the power of the risen Christ can do, do outwardly and inwardly. Don't, don't cap. Don't put a cap on how God changes behaviors and the desires that drive those behaviors. And now, we're ready to have our doctrine of sanctification shaped by the resurrection. Now we're ready to have Easter shape how we think about change. In, in Dane Ortland's fantastic book, Deeper, Real Change for Real Sinners, which I highly recommend, he references Jerry Bridges, who described four possible ways to think about the process of change. Four possible ways to think about the process of change. First, God, then me. God, then me. God worked in salvation. Now I have to take it from here. It's all on me now. Second, God, not me. God, not me. God does it all. I do nothing. I'm entirely passive. I'm a passenger on the train of change. Third, God plus me. God plus me. God works and I work in the process of change. That's much closer to the truth. But four, he says, God in me. Fourth option, God in me. God saves me and unites me to his risen son, which empowers change in my life, which I wholeheartedly engage with. That's biblical sanctification in light of Christ's resurrection. That's Philippians chapter 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you hear that? Work out your own salvation. Work it out. Why? For God is at work in you. That's Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Think about it like this. An unborn child is connected with their mother through the umbilical cord. The child gets ongoing 
constant nourishment from the mother through the umbilical cord. The Christian, you might say, has a spiritual umbilical cord connecting you to the risen Christ. You are in Christ. You are joined to the risen Jesus. You are connected to him through that spiritual umbilical cord flows into your life constantly soul-transforming power for change, ongoing nourishment, ongoing power, ongoing help by the Holy Spirit. As Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs put it, quote, from Christ, as from a fountain, sanctification flows into the souls of the saints, flowing from their union with him. Let me read that again. He said, from Christ, as from a fountain, sanctification flows into the souls of the saints, flowing from their union with him. That's the God in me approach. So what does that look like? What does that look like specifically and practically? Sounds mysterious, doesn't it? Sounds kind of esoteric. It's not. You experience that power through the channels the Holy Spirit promises to work. God's word, God's spirit in prayer, and God's people in fellowship. See, this is not like one of those websites where they have to text you a secret code, you know, the two-step authentication or verification. Doesn't that drive you crazy? The thing comes up from Apple. Hey, we're going to text you a code to make sure it's really you. And I know that's important. And you got to get the secret code and get the secret code just right into the website. And then you can proceed. We can think of change like that. Maybe God will send me a secret code to unlock his power. There's no secret here. Bring his word to bear. Meditating memorizing passages that help you. Cry out to God in prayer. Actively depend on his presence and power. And involve his people. Confessing sin and temptation. Getting input, care, prayer from others. Don't isolate yourself. God works through his people, by his word, and his spirit. But as I was preparing this, I thought, that, that, that's not where I want to end. That's not the primary response I want to leave you with. Those means are vital, but not the main takeaway I want you to go home with. I want to derive the main takeaway from verse 3, which begins, Do you not know? Or literally, are you ignorant of this? Are you, are you ignorant of the fact that you died to sin and are joined to the risen Jesus? In other words, you must know these things. You must know these things. Where are you thinking that you can never change? Where is that for you? Where do you feel like you're on a spiritual treadmill? Just running and running. No change. Not getting anywhere. Not getting any traction. 
with teenagers, is there something that maybe you're keeping hidden from your parents? You know they'd want to help. They know they love you. They love you. They want to care for you, but you're not talking about it, and you just feel stuck. For young adults, maybe there's an area that keeps ensnaring you. Maybe something you look at online. You don't feel like you can stop, or maybe you don't want to yet. For parents, that pattern of sinful anger and impatience toward your children. For married couples, maybe a bitterness or resentment you've cultivated over the years. Or middle-aged people like me or above, a kind of spiritual lethargy. Maybe a hopelessness for growing further in grace and love. Where is that treadmill for you? Right there, friends, you, you need to know two things. You need to know yourself biblically, and you need to know Christ. You need to know yourself and the power of the resurrection of Jesus. You need to know that you have died to sin, that you are no longer its slave, that you've been joined to Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. You've been raised to the, with the risen Christ. You are a new creation in Christ. You must know yourself rightly, and, and you must know your Savior rightly. You must know the risen one and his powerful resurrection, that you have experienced that reality, and he is at work in you. It is said that when Columbus reached the Caribbean in 1492, Columbus named the natives Indians because he had thought he had arrived at what Europeans called the Indies, China, Japan, India. But of course, he was nowhere near China, Japan, and India. Columbus assumed the world was much smaller than it is. Don't we do that about our Savior when it comes to change? We kind of assume he's much smaller than he really is. On that treadmill thinking, he's not big enough to handle this. Not this pattern, not those desires I've cultivated for so long. Friends, he is big enough big enough to change you and me, big enough to make us people who love one another, big enough to make us people who are shining as lights into this world, big enough to make us effective good neighbor teams, big enough to transform me and you. That's the prerequisite for spiritual change here. Believing he's big enough, believing his resurrection is powerful enough. You don't, you don't just know about the empty tomb like you know about the Grand Canyon or you know about Yosemite. You have experienced that reality if you are in Christ. You have been joined to the risen Jesus. Christian, know that this morning. Know that because the experience of Christ's resurrection empowers you to live a new life. The experience of Christ's resurrected life empowers you to live in newness of life right now. Let's pray together. We're going to take the Lord's Supper.
you are here and you have yet to trust in Jesus, I am sincerely not trying to ignore you. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to Christ even now, to get in on this good news, to experience real freedom. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. I urge you, come to Christ. Turn from going your own way and, as it were, surrender to him, trusting in his life, death, and resurrection. He promises not to drive you away, but to wash you, to cleanse you, and, yes, begin to transform you. Come to him even now. Or, if you have trusted Christ, but you are in that sense of despair, Come to him as well. Where you sense that treadmill, hope in him right now. He is eager to meet you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for this good news that our Savior has died for our sins, was buried and is alive, has been raised and is reigning and will return. Thank you that you have joined us spiritually to him, Spirit of God. Would you help us now to be filled with fresh, hope in Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, we're going to celebrate our resurrected Savior by taking the Lord's Supper together. If you've yet to believe, we urge you to take Christ right now, to come to him, turning from going your own way and trusting in his life, death, and resurrection. If you are a Christian, when you're ready, come down the side aisles, take the bread and the cup, take them back to your seats. We'll take the Lord's Supper together. Friend, as you do, feast on Christ by faith. Realize that you are joined to the risen Jesus and hope in him. When you're ready, please come.
have good news, friends. Our Savior is alive. Let us feast on Christ by faith. The Gospel writer Matthew tells us that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Thanks be to God. Would you stand with me if you're able to? Let's close and sing that. Yeah.